0: welcome back to canna week brought to you by new frontier data where we deliver the week's top headlines in cannabis and hear experts weigh in on the impacts these stories are having on the industry i'm your host heather Wickline. Today, we are going to be looking at new markets coming online and outlook for the legal cannabis industry. And our first guest, we are excited to welcome back for our quarterly check-in. He serves as managing partner at Merida Capital, a private equity fund targeting fundamental growth drivers underpinning the rapid development of cannabis industry. Please welcome back Mr. Mitch Baruchowitz. Thanks Thanks for being here. My pleasure. As always, enjoy it. And our in-house guest is none other than our chief knowledge officer. He heads up our research team. Please welcome back Mr. John Cagia. Yeah,
1: delighted to be back, Heather. I always excited to speak with Mitch. So sure. I know.
0: He brings, he brings the energy. I love it. Um, well, we have a lot to cover, so let's dive right in. NewYorkTimes.com reported Connecticut legalizes recreational marijuana with sales aimed for 2022. So Governor Lamont signed a bill legalizing recreational cannabis, and in the process, Connecticut became the 19th state to legalize recreational cannabis. So certain provisions go into the bill that are effective immediately, such as allowing adults 21 or older to possess up to 1.5 ounces of cannabis. Others such as retail sales, homegirls will take a little bit more time to roll out. So retail sales aren't expected to begin until next year. Mitch, what do you have for uh, predictions for Connecticut's retail market?
2: Well, I know John, uh John knows this story well, but it just I Connecticut ironically is some a state that I, I think I might know more about than anyone who's not currently operating the state because I was originally involved at the beginning. I mean, I can say I was there the first day that they released an application. The I was the highest scoring applicant with my partners at Thera Plant. Um, you know, scaffolded operation for a long time before starting Meredith. So it's it's a state that I watch closely. I also live basically on the border of Connecticut in Ryan, New York. So Um, I have a lot of thoughts about Connecticut. I think it's interesting because I've watched the evolution from the beginning that it's always been a somewhat sleepy state in terms of medical sales. It has uh, four really strong vertical operators who, or I'm sorry, four cultivators, um, three of them now fairly large companies, Pureleaf and uh, being one of those and, and GTI. So you have two really large operators of the four. And also it's got a pretty evolved retail landscape with True Leave and Acreage owning some of the retail there. So I think it's an interesting state that has a a pretty good framework for being able to serve the future growth that's gonna come. What I'm interested about in the bill though, is the fact that they don't really have a way to flip the switch into, they they are gonna allow people to possess, but they don't have a way for those people to get it in an adult use fashion. So I'm curious to see if the medical program spikes up because the medical program has been a laggard over the last couple of years. I mean, this is something we saw legacy back till 2013, 14, when there, you know, essentially one doctor saved like half the program by issuing, you know, a ton of medical prescriptions that or medical recommendations that allowed people to get access. So the one thing that I think you didn't mention, which I'm really curious to see, is the effect of Connecticut on Massachusetts because the two Massachusetts lower dispensaries, Fall River being one, one in the Berkshires being another, and the other one that I think is in Springfield, do insane numbers. And so I'm curious because I think the Connecticut, and this is broad consensus, many people think the Connecticut products from a medical perspective, just from a general consumption perspective, are better than the typical Massachusetts product. So I'm curious to see if there's a large degradation in those dispensaries, as people from Connecticut opt to stay home. So I think that the projections for Connecticut are gonna be good. I think Connecticut's got a lower half of the state that has very little access to dispensaries. I think those people are gonna be active uh, consumers, you know, Greenwich, Stanford, um, lower Fairfield County. I think they're gonna be active consumers. I think Connecticut's gonna be a great state. I'm just curious to see how long it takes. I think one thing that's actually highlighted, and I think you wanna cover this later, but just given that, is, how much work it takes to get a stable framework from where we are. And that's why I'm just gonna harp on this because I constantly do. And I, if I didn't, then John would say I'm breaching my contract. It's not about federal legality. It is about state-based laws and the idiosyncrasies of each state. And that's that's what people
1: should focus on.
0: John, anything to add to that?
1: Yeah, a couple of things that, I, that I've uh, found interesting. You know, one is for most of the states that have legalized recently, They've generally allowed home growth to be to start at the point of market activation. So connecticut is is a, a bit of an anomaly in that they're going to wait for home growth to be activated post launch of the retail market, um, which to Mitch's point, basically means that up until retail sales start, um, you know, it's legal to possess. but where are people going to be getting the, these products? So I actually think there's going to be a two phase cycle. Um, likely, at least for the folks who are closer to the Massachusetts border, you're probably seeing um, a lot more consumers shopping in, in, in uh, Massachusetts and bringing that product back to Connecticut. Two, I do think we are going to see a spike in medical uh, market participation. And that's actually been a general trend that we've been seeing during the season of COVID, um, uh, in, as, as particularly in states that have not been making progress toward adult legalization. We've seen a pretty robust bump in, in medical participation. And I think that also tends to happen when you have this long delay between uh, legalization and retail market activation. Um, but once that switch flips, then you'll start to see some con- uh, a contest between border located operations uh, to to attract kind of consumers from from the other side. So um, uh, to Mitch's point, if if Connecticut does end up having or maintaining this higher quality standard of product. Uh, that's in the medical market through the adult use market. Um, There's going to be an interesting tension that starts to build uh, between kind of uh, these New England markets. But also, too, I wonder whether it's going to start creating a tide that lifts all boats, so starts forcing everyone to level up their game. Um, A second thing within the Connecticut law that I I found quite interesting, because we really haven't seen it anywhere else in in the initial stages of a market activation, is this idea of potency caps. Um, 30% uh, for flour, about 60% for for value added products. Um, But it's the first time that we've seen kind of codified in the law at the initialization of our market, uh, the idea that you can have potency limits um, in in cannabis products. And I think it's compelling for a couple of reasons. You know, at 30% for flour, that still gives you know the overwhelming majority of most producers. Depends who your lab yeah. testing company is, right? <laughs> yeah, it's thirty percent is really really strong cannabis, and yeah. uh, that, you know there's not many growers that are hitting that currently, um, and so it's it's not necessarily going to be a drogue on on the ability for producers to to still deliver really high quality flour to the market. But it, it is an interesting notion about what even in a relatively liberal state like Connecticut, what's the upper bounds in a in my opinion, quite unscientific way, are being drawn at at what lawmakers are comfortable with uh, in terms of, of kind of high potency, both flour and high potency value added products. You know, the, the, so it, it, it remains to be seen, one, how well this works and how consumers respond to what is available in the market. So, for example, in this Connecticut, Massachusetts debate, will you see consumers trying to get 35, 40 percent flour uh, or 80, 90 percent THC kind of vapes and, and extracts from Massachusetts because they're not available in the state? Uh, and then, two, as we see more states legalize, it'll be interesting to see whether this model of codified potency limits at the market outset will become a more common practice, or whether this is something that's going to remain anomalous to the Connecticut market.
2: Well, John, I mean, I'm curious to hear your opinion. I mean, I I don't get involved in the political debates, but I watch them extremely closely. And one thing I do think that you're highlighting, which which maybe you're doing it kind of implicitly, but I want to just like flesh it out, is People, anyone who thinks that there is like a federal law that can legalize, not deschedule, not decriminalize, legalized, should watch the Connecticut debate as an example of how many specific things go into a cannabis law, with, and how it's so inappropriate at a federal level to even think about this. Which is, I mean, potency caps is an example. Like, what is a what are the regulators even trying to achieve with that? Because Colorado was the only other state that said. We're going to allow you to buy less potent products if you're a consumer. But they did that through sizing, like 100 milligrams, 150 milligrams. They didn't say potency. Because I do think, so so what happens exactly if, let's say, there's a strain or a genetic that can be 35% THC, what happens to that? I, I mean, I don't first of all I think it's artificial and I think 30% is really high, and that most lab testing is geared to achieve that. So I don't even believe it if I see it oftentimes, right? But but more importantly, it just shows you that regulators don't always know what they want to achieve when they pass these things and how you're not gonna get that at the federal level or they'll never pass a bill. And then the other point I want to make which you made on homegrown. We we invested recently specifically because of how much home grow is embedded in each state. Not necessarily the timing component you laid out, but in New York, in people see that as a social justice, social equity issue, which I, I don't think I see as closely, but if they see it, fine. But we invested in that homegrown technology specifically because we think there is a huge potential market for people who want to grow their own cannabis And having a do-it-yourself and turnkey solution is a huge thing. I'm curious to hear your opinion, though, on what are the goals of these little rules that really don't seem to achieve much and only add complexity. Do they? And we've seen in other states, they get wiped away. These rules get changed right before the regulations come out. The regulations say this is impractical. We both know that the regulations don't always look exactly like the law. The law is just the enabling component of it. So I'm curious to hear your opinion on, on the federal aspect, given how much Connecticut and New York are, are you know needling through the little the little things that you just won't find at a federal level.
1: So I think you make a really important point. And foundationally, I think these are political debates, or, or these are politically motivated uh, market strictures, not, not ones that are generally informed by science um, or by um, a, a practical or pragmatic understanding of how this market is going to operate you know, the challenge you have when you're trying to pass these laws via legislatures rather than by ballot initiative is you've got to build these coalitions. And the the challenge with doing that, even in um, markets like Connecticut, where there's general consensus that this needs to happen is now addressing all of the concerns of of people who may have very divergent views around um, uh, issues, but you need their votes in order to get these laws passed. Right, so kind of like
2: pass the law and then let the regulators deal with how the regulations reflect these totally impractical
1: market constraints. Exactly. So, so let's pass this law with our bedfellows that is this kind of odd uh, odd grouping of very, very divergent interests. Uh, it means that you end up with a lot more both sausage making and, and a lot more complexity in these regulatory frameworks. Um, the market will generally start out and, and may be hobbled. We saw this in Washington when they started off with Uh, their insane 2020-20 tax policy at producer, processor, and retail levels. Um, They did that because that was one of the ways that it was guaranteed to get the law passed, but they realized that this market is not going to function when we have such an intense compounded uh, tax rate. And so after the market run for a while, uh, the the operators complained, and ultimately that law got changed in special session. I think you're likely to see this happen more often in states that are passing these laws through the legislatures rather than by ballot initiative because that's really the only way to get them done. Now, this is going to become a much, much more difficult issue to deal with at the national level, just given the level of acrimony in our federal policy, and you know, laws around um, home growing around. Potency levels around uh, what counts as a DUI level of, of uh, cannabinoid in the bloodstream. I mean, like and which done. cannabinoids? Yeah. You know, is there going to be a different testing threshold for THC for for delta nine versus delta eight? Just as one example, trying to resolve these in in a federal bill that can gain national consensus is a really really tall order. So Mitch, it's a that, of... let's
2: be real, it's not happening. Let's just, let's just say like what the truth is. I mean, you can leave yourself from the equivocation room and say like, hey, it could happen. But like, and I know look, on Twitter, there's a huge debate about this yeah. and it's constant and ongoing. And I think, and I'd like, I mean, at least maybe this is my inflated impression of Meredith's impact on thought leadership. But I truly believe that we have influenced the fact that people no longer look at the federal as some massive end all be all because we were one of the early voices saying to folks on the states then people start to go, you know what, this state-based thesis kind of does seem to play out more realistically, Uh, you know, when you look at it. It's just how do you deal with these thorny local issues at the federal level, especially at a time when the federal government is is not dealing with any omnibus issues, like an infrastructure bill. Look at what happens with something that has been done 75 times over the last, you know, since the, the New Deal. So dealing with something that's brand new and like the issues that would pop up, like what if Alabama's like, we don't want, you know what, we, we don't think it makes any sense for that potency gap. So I just don't see any chance in the world that the federal bill will ever deal with legalizing cannabis and putting constraints on it other than to say, here's banking, here's all those other issues that we were
1: talk about, the adjacent issues. And, and just maybe just a tie below on that. You know, maybe one potential approach is to say it's legal, but all of the all of these um, minutiae are going to be resolved at the state level. Um, one of the challenges we anticipate that could ha- happen if that ends up being the case is then you have uh, businesses suing uh, either governments or operators in other markets because you're not able to, to engage in free and fair commerce because the state is putting up barriers to. to that's interstate commerce.
2: I mean, that's. And then you get to another issue, which, you know, I'm way more skeptical about than other
1: people on the timing of that as well. So, so to, either way, you end up having really intractable issues, either trying to get, um, you know, a, a Congress right now that are barely looking at each other to try and reach consensus on really, really minute issues that, candidly, most lawmakers aren't paying a great deal of attention to. Or two, you get the passage of, of a broad bill that uh, that devolves, uh, responsibility for the regulatory structures to the state level. And then you start seeing these um, uh, this upheaval at the state level as as, as operators start finding that uh, the rules really impede their ability to, to operate in a free and fair way across multiple markets.
2: Right. But then, you know, John, I, I, and I'll just end it with this. You then, when you look deeper, and I know you, you guys do it at, at actions over words, then you have a, a situation like the Shikari Richard, Richardson situation where... The, the federal funding for the Olympic Committee comes from essentially Congress, right, at some point. And yet, how many people in Congress have proposed any changes right now for someone who's literally not gonna be able to compete in the Olympics if she can smoke cannabis? So when, when when push comes to shove, there's not a lot of will at the federal level to do anything racy. It's gonna be very simple, very simplified. And I mean, when, it, when, it, when the time comes, the signaling is very clear very little will at the federal level to do anything that isn't right down the middle of the strike
0: Right. Well, getting back to Connecticut just quickly, I know in this article, the governor um, noted that Connecticut has a chance to learn from other states instituting new markets. What are some, I guess, important lessons learned that we can take from other legal markets for Connecticut?
2: The most important thing is that when when you go adult use, if you look at how states have gotten right, and I think some states have done it really well with medical limited licensing, I think people are. Deep, you you have to recognize that the communities matter, and I think one thing that that you can learn is is how important it is to allow communities the opportunity to opt out or opt in based on their local constituencies, so that they don't feel like this is just kind of a tidal wave that's overwhelming them. I think you, you get better receptivity when, like if you look at Michigan, Michigan as fraught as it has been in its kind of fragmented rollout, has found communities to now be opting in after the fact, right? New Jersey's allowing opt-in and opt-outs. The opt-out rate is crazy. If you ask me, it's like 94% of the cities. New York is going to allow the same. And I think the way New York is is addressing it is through taxation, that you won't receive if you opt out. So I think Connecticut can learn a lot of lessons about empowering communities. Not necessarily the way Massachusetts did it, but I think I think that fragmentation of getting this agreement was, was difficult. But I think that's one thing. I think I think Connecticut can learn and has learned is how to necessarily deal with the social equity component. It looks like they have an, an actual somewhat thoughtful approach, which is, you know, we're gonna do a lottery. We're also going to get out merit-based licenses. We're also going to do, if you want to pay in, you can then skip both of those processes. And I think that allows um, minority uh, potential operators to partner and to get business up and running. Anything that encourages commerce in a natural way is going to usually be better than like what LA or Illinois, for instance, which is still, I think, Ben Colvin recently tweeted that it, it's 675 days. There's not one social equity applicant up and running. So I think Connecticut has a lot of things in there that encourage um, minority or social equity candidates to get up and running quickly. And I think that's a great thing to learn, and I think they did a pretty good job of it. I mean, on the flip side, Connecticut's got one of the longest running medical programs from a limited license uh, perspective, and yet it took them, you know, eight and a half years and they've been talking about adult use for three, and they they were like the last northeastern state to take it seriously other than maybe Pennsylvania. So. You know, you have some yin and yang in these situations. I would say that the governor's will um, seems to, to be to push this. And I think when you, when you get institutional will, like I just said, on the opposite of what I said before about the federal will, when you get the local will, you actually get better programs. When people actually care, the regulators in Connecticut, if I write at the Department of Consumer Protection, which I know very well through my, my own experience there, are some of the most informed regulators in the country when it comes to understanding the program. I mean, literally the same six or seven people in Connecticut have been managing the program for years, and they've done a great job. I and mean, program is very stable. And like I said, there's three big operators here. So I think it's going to be a great stable. Well, to John's point, there is going to be some tension. There's probably going to be a spike in Massachusetts as one flood's there and can bring it back. And the one other point I'll make, which is really key, and you see it in the data that, you know, I think that John and I discussed, we discussed recently on some panel, which I don't remember where, plus because we do so many of these. But when you get a law that finally says this is allowed, the stigma—how much the stigma sticks while it's still illegal—is tremendous. And when that goes away, you do see a rush of new consumers of elderly people who are finally willing to try it for their sleep or their pain. I, I don't think people really understand how much illegality drives. A stigma for what we would consider likely consumers who are currently not participating in medical or otherwise.
0: John, what do you think? I know we've talked a lot about just consumer education and how important that is for communities.
1: I would. And maybe the only other thing I would add is you know, one of the things I think the markets have consistently taught us is the utility of speed, of moving quickly get it going, and then fix your problems as you identify them, rather than trying to build a a perfect regulatory framework. Part of the reason why it's so important, we think, and increasingly important uh, within these new markets to move quickly, is the unregulated market, the illicit market, has become really sophisticated. You just need to look at what's happening in D.C.'s uh, uh, grey market, if you can even call it that, Um, to see how effectively the unregulated, unlicensed operators have been able to leverage uh, technology, really efficient customer service, extraordinary delivery in a a small jurisdiction. Um, But the the efficiency and effectiveness with which um, uh, the unregulated market can move means that the longer you delay in setting up um, uh, kind of a regulated market structure, uh, the more challenging it's going to be once you do finally get uh, these markets going. Um, to to persuade consumers to to move out of now what has become a robust, really efficient um, uh, market into the legal one. It also means that that you're um, delaying lessons that you will inevitably learn, um, because you're never going to get it right out of the gate. So you may as well start learning how to crawl and and scrape your knees uh, before the industry becomes fully mature. Uh, rather than de- delaying the inevitable while also giving the unregulated market uh, even greater opportunity to become more entrenched in an environment where uh, there's there's no more sanction uh, from the government for, for the activities that used to be prohibitively um, or punitively uh, uh, punished. That's a crazy important point. I mean, it, it really is. You
2: Basically, you create this surge of interest with no way to fulfill it you're just embedding the illegal or unregulated market even more for, 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 a time, you know, we've talked about the the transition and how it's inevitable. I, I, I think, um, you know, speed is essential because there's an inertia, but, you know, one thing I've noticed across, I don't know how many States I've been involved in, maybe 14 or 15 regulators, the problem that we've seen is regulators pass a law, I'm sorry, legislators pass a law and then they leave the hard work to regulators who have to like, Create rules, and then the legislators are like, "Well, we already did our job; we passed the law." And so fixing it, they're, they're kind of like, "Well, I already dealt with the Canvas thing." Like, if you're not interested in Canvas as a regulator, I mean, I'm sorry, as a legislator, you don't want to deal with it again when it comes to fixing the laws. So I do think that's why the regulators try to—they try to get it perfect because they have buy-in right now at this moment from the legislator, who two years from now might be like that's your problem. I already, I I voted for it. I'm done. Don't ever bring it up to me ever again. And I think that's why, look, that's, this is what the industry we're in. It's there's tension at all parts of the connectivity, interactivity with regular, there's always tension, which is what the opportunity truthfully is for, for people like myself. But I mean, John, you highlight it. Like you are just highlighting tension after tension, after tension, after tension, because it really exists. And I think people, don't necessarily appreciate that even in Connecticut, you're going to have a thousand things go wrong with the program and, and then, you know, how does it get fixed? It's up to someone. And then, then that's when you look back to what is the will. And when the governor's on top of it, I think you end up getting those things fixed better.
0: Well, amidst all this tension, there has been great momentum since Connecticut was just legalized recreational after New Jersey, Virginia, New York, New Mexico. What do you think attributes to this momentum? I know, because and, and, you're saying there's so much tension going on, but we are seeing a good momentum and good swing.
2: Yeah, I think it's just uh, it's just an easy like John. I, I think John highlighted this as a throwaway, you know, sort of line. But the ballot measure versus regulators and legislators passing laws. I think. The ballot measure states that could do it have done their best. And then you have a state like Virginia, which is rapidly becoming purple, and you, you have the the uh, the polling is just unequivocal on these things. But really, you know what the momentum comes from? It comes from looking at other states and saying, look at how much tax revenue Colorado is making. Their world has not come to an end. You know, I think if you go back and looked at the legislative dicta around early states who passed medical and the the naysaying and doomsday predicting, you know, they, they would make Nouriel Roubini look like a, a optimist by by like comparison, right? You know, and he's Dr. Doom. But I think when, when you look at the typical legislative verbiage, right? The dicta that legislators give in their, you know, in their speeches that no one ever watches on C-SPAN, you would see predictions that have come that they're just ridiculous like oh there's going to be kids smoking it everywhere and it's just going to be mayhem and meanwhile they never really look at the counter which is oh so not regulating it somehow stops all that from happening you know it's 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 just amazing but i think people in new jersey new york and, and Virginia, especially, which was really kind of faster than people thought. I mean, we predicted it, but other people, I think, were on the uptake there. Um, I think you look and it's just there's enough legislators who say not regulating it doesn't fix anything. Regulating it potentially has that chance to fix it. And I think when you look at that, how what is the counter argument to regulating it if the unregulated market is already triple the size? There's, there's virtually none. And then you just look at the tax revenue. I mean, COVID has just made sensitivity to budgets higher than ever. And I think that's just, look, call it what you will, but that is the reason. And I think that's why on state levels it's moving so quickly. Whereas the federal level, it's kind of like, you know what? I'm going to do, you know, Chuck Schumer has been getting applause for the last year talking about it. And meanwhile, I know his bill is imminent, but it's been an applause line at the federal level because there's no, you don't see the, result on the federal level the way you do in state. Connecticut passes a law, within a year it's gonna be generating tax revenue. Easy, right? Cause, effect. I don't think you get the same cause and effect at the federal level, so there's just less will. I mean, John, is that a crazy thought?
1: I, I don't think it is at all. Right, pretty um, obvious. Know, and and you know, so, so for example, one of, the, one of the things that, when we talk about why this is happening at the speed at, at which it's happening, is It's not just about you know people adopting a live and let live. I don't I don't accept or think that cannabis is a good idea, but you know I, I let people do what they want to do behind closed doors. Um, but one of the numbers that that Gallup recently put out that really struck me is the idea that nearly seven in ten Americans now say that smoking marijuana is morally acceptable. So it's not only that that you know, there's a resignation in this idea of, um, you know, other people want to do it, so leave them be, I may not like it, but let them, you know. You're saying
2: like the libertarian it. argument of,
1: that's not yeah, true. no longer that. It is a, a, a fundamental reframing on this idea that I think smoking marijuana is morally acceptable. And that's a, that's a really important kind of nuance, but a really important point in, in terms of the sea change we're seeing in American society. Um, and the erosion of the, the stigma that has been so central to our ability to perpetuate uh, prohibition in the form that it's existed. Um, it's, it's really easy to demonize people for doing something that you believe is morally reprehensible. Um, it becomes a very different type of social conversation when you have no issue, you take no issue, uh, you think that it is that they are morally right or morally justified uh, in engaging in that activity. And so I think, you know, that to me has been one of the just really interesting kind of subtexts around the sea change. Uh, it is not about a libertarian view of I may not approve, but you go ahead and do it. Um, it really has become much more, um, you know, two thirds of Americans, uh, nearly, nearly, uh, nearly seven and ten saying, you know, I actually think this is OK and let, let, you know, people should be able to do it and I should be able to do it. Um, and, you know, once you cross that threshold, uh, this to me now becomes an issue of inevitability and there will be roadblocks. There will be challenges to, to um, getting the regulatory process right and, and getting some of the most acutely conservative markets to get on board. Uh, but I think as a general society, as a, as a, as a general public, um, particularly as we look at the demographics of the U.S. and how they're going to evolve for the next 10 to 15 years. Um, I, I think this is this is uh, a matter of when, not if, um, and I think we will all be surprised by um, how much faster this steamroll goes. Not even necessarily in terms of laws changing, but in terms of how quickly cannabis becomes normalized and socially acceptable um, in in our society. You, you know, it, the, the political
2: side um, is kind of baffling too. I think politicians tend to be a self-selected group of righteous people who may have avoided cannabis because they thought it could affect their political career, right? And then all of a sudden, you know, one of their friends comes back from Denver and was like, I tried it. You know, nothing happened. I I would love to, I don't know if, if you can do it. I know you guys have done a lot of data around consumer preferences and stuff, but what is driving the erosion of the stigma other than legality, which we know is a powerful tool, is... I think it has to be something around interacting with people who are consuming and are living normal, productive, you know, like the fine people drink fine wine at night. People smoke cannabis at night. There's people that smoke during the day. Seth Rogen, right. Obviously basically was like, I smoke weed all day and it's how it makes it productive. And here's how i manage it. I think when you keep getting those stories and you're like, you're right. It's not the libertarian, just the in. Let's call it the passive. Just do it. I don't care. You keep away from me. It's actively like I think this is okay. I know someone that did it. I know a lot of people that did it, and the world didn't come to an end. And they're not driving impaired. And they're not getting into fourteen-year-olds. They're not putting in gummies, you know, and leaving it on people's desks at their school. It's you know all that that old poster. I love the old posters, right? With the the devil overlooking the guy who's smoking, and the woman has like a lascivious dress. I mean. When you look at the the hyperbole around cannabis over the last seven years, it's, it's um it's kind of it's 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 so epic, right? To be able to look at back at that now, even though we're not fully there to legality yet. But when you look, John, at where this stigma was not too long ago, you know it's amazing where we've come. And that's kind of why, Heather, to finish the thought to what you asked, that's <laughs> why we're getting legality in the East Coast corridor, right, is because there's no, these, I think the East Coast, the population densities, the the rapidly evolving, this is not a actively bad thing, makes it much easier for legislators to just pass a law, to just say, you know what, I'm not going to get kicked out of office for voting for cannabis. In fact, I might get kicked out of office I'm
0: against it. John you and I have talked about this or just about you know when you're when you hear about someone's grandmother using cannabis for her glaucoma or you know this helps get someone off of opioid yeast I mean there's it, it makes it such a more positive spin on cannabis and not it takes away that stigma because how can a granny using it for glaucoma be you know something bad right well, John knows about the
2: DC
1: program from a
2: friend
1: <laughs> Yeah, from a couple of friends yeah. <laughs> You're absolutely right. You know, as soon as cannabis becomes a kitchen table issue, I'm actually watching this happening in happening in real time on the continent in, in Africa, um, you know, deep, deep, intense stigma. You know, the the acute belief that cannabis is destroying the lives of you know the future of our children, um, that the people who want to use it medicinally are just trying to get high, uh, and that the the punitive prohibition should be kept in place until it becomes. Grandma's on her deathbed and, you know, the the doctors have done everything that they can do to help her. Um, Should we try cannabis? And then grandma starts eating again. Grandma starts feeling better. She starts resting better. She starts being able to play with the grandkids again. Um, It's one thing when when you see these stories in The New York Times or The Washington Post. Completely different thing when when you see it happening in real time to somebody you know and love. Um, And we have watched people turn into evangelists literally overnight from watching a loved one um go through this and and so so that social contagion you know this is literally a virus it's part of the reason why um, you see uh, such kind of geographic proximity in the markets that legalize why right? it tends to be you'll have one market pop and then certainly everything around it pops um, it part of it is, is this idea that hey what do they know that we don't why do they have it while we don't but also part of it is just the human part of the, the human story around it um, and I think as, as access grows and more people see uh, not just the medical side but but how effective an alternative state to alcohol that cannabis can be for the people who are looking to unwind after work um, then I think you, you know it, it just becomes an accelerant uh, to to what is already a significant social movement. And then to Mitch's point about the political uh, kind of calculus here, it it's really striking to think that you know it was only about Twenty years ago, that people wondered whether Bill Clinton would have survived the uh, the cannabis scandal of his day. You know, I, I smoked, but I did not inhale, um, which is you know now laughable to think. But the young politicians, the young aspiring politicians in that day, Ooh. the key lesson from that is keep away from this stuff. You know, this is political suicide. This almost brought down a presidency. Um, and so it has taken a while for for that attitude to shift, for this thought to happen. Uh, and to Mitch's point now, we are seeing that politicians are realizing, hang on, we are far enough along now that this could actually, opposing it, it could become a liability rather than an asset. Uh, but, but amazing that it has happened in such a short time frame. Uh, but it is a fundamental fundamental rewiring of the political brain. Uh, and given that politicians tend to be very self-serving, um, I think you know it takes them a while to, to kind of see this new light. But I think increasingly... Um, as more have waded into this water, the the, the you know the, the writing is on the wall, and I think you you will see much greater political kind of support and and, and focus on this uh, in the coming years.
2: But do you think uh, nowadays, if so, if if someone like Bill Clinton was like, I didn't inhale, someone would be like, then why'd you pop on the joint? You just wasted all that <laughs> weed.
1: Stop <laughs> wasting weed, man. Yeah.
2: but if you're one of those guys, it's just like, and like, come on. man.
1: You talk about pop culture, Mitch. Um, I I don't know if you caught this, uh, I guess it was about a week or two ago, on one of Conan O'Brien's last. No, I didn't catch Conan O'Brien
2: smoking on live TV. (laughs) Of
1: course. No. (laughs) The fact that 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 did not. I'm not sure he inhaled though. I don't
2: know. It, so it, it didn't say, It didn't look like it was a full lung inhale. he didn't
1: get uh, all the ear tissue involved in The fact that the debate is whether he actually inhaled rather than the fact that on live TV, one of right. the country's most popular hosts put a joint to his lips, um, I think is just reflection of the sea change. The fact that this he was- He grabbed it, and it, I think
2: the band was husband. like, okay, bring that over here, man. It was like, don't right, right. pass it back to Rogan, he's going to kill it. You yeah. know, like, pass it back to the band or something. You know, remarkable I tweeted about it i you know look I try to every once in a while highlight like the most interesting normalized trends like this is a sign of normalization and I think that given and especially remember what Conan meant to the late night set he wasn't like the edgy young guy he's like the guy that they thought would be comforting to like you know the typical elderly slash old late night watcher so he's like the Johnny Carson kind of, which is, can you imagine Johnny Carson like drinking a fifth of gin, like on his show? No, I mean, this, this is like the guy who's supposed to be like the most, people. like Bill Maher? I can't believe Bill Maher let Conan O'Brien beat him to smoking weed on live TV. <laughs> Given that Bill Maher has been talking about it for, you know, how much he smokes for 25 years. He let Conan beat him. And now you know what? He probably thinks I can't do it because it would be cliche.
0: Hilarious. Well, we are almost out of time, but um, before we go, wanted to, I can't believe that I'm saying this, we're already halfway through 2021. What are any predictions, expectations for the remainder of 2021? Mitch, I'll let you go first.
2: I, you know, the problem is I try to come up with unique predictions each time. I'm kind of running, you know, a little low after making, I don't know, something like 700 predictions this year. <laughs> um, I would say I have two that I think are kind of new and emerging, um, that I think are, are relatively, you know, rel, uh, recent and relevant. One, I think my prediction is a federal bill is um, is going to be pre- is going to be presented, and then will be pared down and pared down and pared down until you see very little other than maybe core banking and other adjacent aspects dealt with because of the stuff I just laid out before. That's one. And, and would you think I'm not saying it's fully contrarian, but I do think that is not in the middle of consensus right now. I think what I just said is far out of the consensus amongst the smartest cannabis watchers who really believe that a full-fledged, full-throated cannabis bill is coming. I don't. Okay, that's number one. So, and if I'm wrong, I'll stick up to it. I did make a racy prediction six months ago about someone in the United States going to Europe. That ended up being spot on so quick. Thank you, Boris Jordan. Love you. Keep doing a great job and for making me look smart on that one. Um, so that was that was a good one. The other thing I'm going to say, which I think is is a little bit counterintuitive, again, not necessarily contrarian, but counterintuitive, is I believe in 21, you will see in the legislative sessions, you know how they work right there the second half of the year. I think you will see a bill passed or at least pass out of committee that, forces workers' compensation or in-state insurers to reimburse medical cannabis in – and the regulators will, you know, pass the rules about that. I think you're going to see that in the second half of this year, that medical cannabis is going to become a different aspect because once it's reimbursed, then there's – you know, and I don't know if it's based on federal. I'm just saying I think someone – it could be New Jersey, maybe New Mexico – It's going to be a state that has already passed an adult use and now wants to go further into the socialization of how you deal with this on the normalized front. And I think you're going to see a bill get really close to passed in 21 that that forces either a workers' comp or a general insurance company to reimburse medical cannabis that's used in a prescribed way. That's my prediction. I don't think anyone's made that prediction yet.
0: That is super interesting.
2: I mean, John, you tell me, has anyone, have you heard anyone say anything close to that? I
1: actually haven't. Um, you well, and I've talked about.
2: it. No, Heather, mark it down because if someone else makes me look smart, I want my credit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. Yeah,
2: I mean, I did the Europe thing, right, John? I nailed that one pretty yeah,
1: quick. You call that one? You call that one? If there's a couple of things that that we yeah. think are going to be worth watching in in the second half of, of twenty one going to twenty two.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. So one is just the the recal- the recalculations around what the international market opportunity looks like. It's been you know, slow going or, or a tough slog for a lot of these early, the, the folks who got started in these international markets really early. Uh, but I think as you continue to see more markets, whether it's Mexico's Supreme Court law from uh, last week, whether it's Rwanda uh, now fully passing a law that will allow not just cannabis cultivation for export, but they're now... Creating a domestic medical cannabis program. I think, even amidst this really frothing opportunity within the US, I think you're going to start to see more operators saying, all right, so we continue to, to lay all our, the bulk of our horsepower in the US and North American markets, but let's start planting seeds, whether it's through relationship cultivation, uh, deployment of some limited assets, uh, maybe some tech transfer, but really starting to try and get a, an edge in or a foot in the door uh, in some of these more promising international markets, not necessarily um, as target destinations that will be high revenue for exports, but also to start cultivating this idea of global brand development, uh, as, as well as looking for uh, international markets to, to grow lower cost cannabis uh, that will be directed toward primarily the European and Asian markets. So that's one thing. Second, um, I'm really, really bullish on this idea of the socialization of cannabis in the summer of 2021. Um, I've lost count of the number of conversations I've had around how much cannabis was present at 4th of July barbecues and gatherings uh, last weekend. Um, and how normal it felt. Um, Normal because of the quality of products that were being brought, Um, the the caliber of branding and brand development, uh, over on on top of the product development that has happened uh, during this year of COVID, I think has been phenomenal. Um, And, you know, as just a student of of kind of brand development, product development, Um, this is a phenomenally exciting time for this industry. Um, because consumers are going to be returning to social societies and sharing with people who may not be that active uh, as consumers, who may not be spending a lot of time in dispensaries, showing them what is possible. And I think that brings people into the legal market, gets them thinking, hey, maybe I should go and visit a dispensary, even though i have been using my guy. So the, the hyper-socialization of, of, of cannabis in the summer, going to the fall of 2021, coupled with the advent of social news spaces, um, I think means we're, we're, we're in for... Uh, a really, really interesting season as, as people begin to bring some of their learned behaviors from the pandemic, all of the consumption that they've been doing behind closed doors, as they start bringing them back uh, out into social society uh, as life returns to normal or starts to. End. John, well,
2: one, one thing, I, it's not a prediction, but the the first homegrown German cannabis was now delivered to pharmacies there. I mean, how quickly does that lead to you know what we talked about the the decompression of the normalization as the bag explodes right I think you know that's not a prediction but I'm just saying the fact that homegrown German cannabis was delivered you know in Germany watch how quickly people go yeah why are we importing it you know I think that has it, these things change so quickly and I think the European market you know I'm interested to see what you guys think of the European size because I think that's another you know, it's another market that everyone just gets wrong from a, it's just so conservative. And I think once Germans and Dutch you know, have access to unfettered retail and and products, the, the European market's just going to be, it's going to be a good market.
1: So to that point, in, in September of this year, uh, the Germans will be voting on their next Bundestag. Um, four of the six parties that are vying have all come out in, in support of legal cannabis, or at least a fundamental policy reform, uh, including the Green Party, which has put out a pretty robust manifesto on how they, they're proposing it be regulated in German society. This is the first time you'll be having a parliamentary election where, um, in order for the winning party to form a coalition, it's going to have to party uh, to partner with uh, at least one, if not two parties that are uh, very intentional and, and being very proactive in the advocacy for cannabis drug reform. Um, We may be underestimating the consequence of um, this debate in in Germany, because to your point, uh, Mitch, um, the German medical market is cooking with gas. Uh, I I think we're we're starting to hit that threshold of, of very strong, sustained growth. Okay. Uh, but given it's the largest economy in Europe, it's the most influential economy in Europe, uh, and it has a very special place in terms of the global kind of uh, uh, global governance. Um, given how serious and sober the Germans are considered to be, um, I think if Germany goes legal, it would have outside of North America huge reverberations in a way that neither the U.S., Mexico, or Canada uh, would have had. It's, it's going to be a, a major, major uh, uh, development of consequence.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And thank you to our listeners for Canada Week. If you haven't, please be sure to like, subscribe, hit the notification bell. And if you really like us, give us five stars. Thank you for joining us today. And we will see you next time. New Frontier Data provides this podcast for entertainment purposes only. Nothing stated in this podcast should be taken as legal or financial advice. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by the company. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by New Frontier Data employees are those of the employees and do not necessarily reflect the view of the company or any of its officials. If you have any questions about this disclaimer,
2: please contact our legal department.